I've given hundreds of seminars in the U.S. over the last 20 years, and I always have the Japanese at the beginning of the seminar tell me what they don't feel comfortable with about working with Americans, and that's always on the list. And it's always those three right together. We don't keep our promises. We don't apologize when we break a promise and we make excuses. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Now and Zen podcast. This is a show where we speak with fascinating folks who have an interesting and insightful Japan journey to share. It's savvy professionals from the arts, business, and culture. Yeah, the ABCs of all things Japan. We discuss and debate what it's like to live, work, and experience the most enigmatically exciting country in the world. Direct from Tokyo, this is the Now and Zen Podcast. Better sleep, better you. We all know sleep is important, and having a great mattress is paramount in achieving a deep sleep. This is where the Goo Goo Mattress Company comes in. Super comfortable, very affordable, and delivered to your home for free. Go to gugu.jp, read the many testimonials, and enter Zen in the promo box and receive a 20% discount. Learn more at gugu.jp and get ready for sweet dreams. Gugu, better sleep, better you. Welcome to another episode of the Now and Zen podcast. This episode, I continue my great discussion with Tim Sullivan. Sometimes, you know, when recording a podcast, you get so much great content, but for one reason or another, some of the content just doesn't fit or we run into time constraints. So what did I do? I saved it for this follow-up. Especially his Hawaiian airline story is a really fascinating look into intercultural training. We also chat about the Japan apology and his penchant for breaking the rules. Even though this is the shortest ever episode, I'm sure you will love the wisdom and insight of Tim Sullivan, part two. You have a video clip on your website, and I think it's a, a customer service seminar that you did in Hawaii. Yeah, that was Hawaiian Airlines at the Halekulani Hotel. I think it was actually the first seminar I did. So at the time, they had no routes to Japan. They had a new route that they were planning to launch to Haneda from Honolulu. Okay. And they had this extremely progressive, intelligent CEO. And they have a good one now, too. But I'm talking about this guy because he retired. His name is Mark Dunkerley. And Mark was a very uh, worldly guy. I think he was the son of a diplomat, something like that. So he lived in many countries. So he was very culturally astute and very sensitive to culture. And as part of the research, he and, of course, many other executives went on many different flights of different companies, JAL and ANA, and, you know, to see what the competition's doing, right? right. And he was worried when he saw the level of service that he was getting and he said, we need to raise our game. And to his credit, they invested a ton of money in training everybody. I mean, I'm talking, I trained the board of directors. I trained the union reps. I trained every customer service person at their airport, every flight attendant, their baggage handlers, their pilots. I trained wow. everybody. And he wanted 
and it wasn't him too. There was a the guy I was working with was a VP named Blaine Miyasato, and Blaine wanted it to be done in a high class place, Halakulani, mm-hmm. to show this is this is the level of service we want to give. And and the reason it was done at Halakulani was I trained people at Halakulani. That's how Hawaiian Airlines found me. Okay, and so Halakulani is considered the primo hotel in Hawaii with the best service, right? So he wanted everyone to do the training there to see how Holly Kulani did it and say, this is what we want to be. I have never had so much fun in my life. I had a blast. I did, I I trained, I don't know, 2000 people every day for uh, well over a month, month and a half, something like that. And uh, every day we'd bring people in and we'd walk them through. We'd teach them concepts like Kikubari. It was wonderful. And so they they launched and it was a huge success. And one of the things I, I stressed, both with upper management when I trained the board of directors, I said, don't try to be Japanese because – you're going to be competing with JAL and ANA and they really are Japanese and they're going to eat your lunch if you try to compete on their terms. So change the battlefield. Give yourself home field advantage by being Hawaiian and make yeah. them try to imitate you because they can't be Hawaiian as well as you can. And Perfect. and the president, the light bulb went on because they were thinking about hiring a lot of Japanese flight attendants, which they did. But mm-hmm. they decided, no, we're going to go authentic Hawaii. When you get in there, it's going to be like a flying tiki hut. You know, you're going to be in Hawaii when you come <laughs> aboard. And I t- taught them things like, to me, authenticity, you can't put a price on it. It's so valuable. Whether it's on an individual level or whether it's with your company, you have to be who you are. You have to be real. So I was yeah. telling them, look, I can give you all these rules of what the Japanese do or don't do, but I personally break all the rules when it works for me. I do it strategically, but you got to know the rule before you break it. And the example I gave them, and I wouldn't give it now, this was again, pre-coronavirus. I said, you know, Japanese don't hug each other. So I could give you a rule to say, don't hug the Japanese. But you know what? Whenever I bring people to Hilo, which is where I lived at the time, hula dancers want to come study. We go to the airport, we pick them up at Hilo Airport, and we break the rule. We put a lay around their neck and we hug them. And it makes them smile. It breaks the ice. And by the time they leave, they're hugging us. And and we've made friends with a lot of them, even in Japan here. And when they see me here, they hug me. They And they love it. It's like, look at me. I'm hugging my friend from Hawaii. I'm cool, you know, and because it's something they can't do in their culture, but they, they feel like there's this authenticity to it, you know? Yeah. So I wanted, they were all very nervous, like, oh, we're not going to be able to meet the expectations. And I said, listen, you guys, if you Mm. be who you are, and if you treat them the way you treat me, when I go to your home and you give me your Hawaiian hospitality, they're going to love you. And exactly. I, so I tried to give them confidence to be who they were and just yep. tweak it a little bit, you know, and and find your cross-cultural sweet spot. 
be authentic and just make enough tweaks to bridge the gaps. And each person has to figure out for themselves what that sweet spot is. There's no paint by the number rule. And, and part of it all is also just showing that you're trying to make an effort to yes. accommodate their culture. Exactly. You know, sincerity and, and effort, as you know, goes a long way here. They'll forgive you. They will forgive you for, for mistakes, especially if you're not Japanese. And if you look Japanese, you might have a little bit of like a lot of the, the third and fourth generation Japanese actually have a little tougher time because visually they look like they should know what to do. And the Japanese yeah. often unconsciously impose their standard on them because they look Japanese and all they, they should be able to figure it out. Yeah. But overall, long story short, Hawaiian, it was a huge, huge success. And I think it's like even today, because they since launched, I mean, they have Fukuoka routes and they go to Hokkaido and they go to Osaka now. Did they ever get back to you and say, you know, Tim, because of your seminars, you know, something that measurable results that they were able to um, get from your seminars? Did you well, ever hear anything about that? Well, even during the seminars, this was pre-launch. This is before they launched it. They were their customer service was improving with American customers oh, yeah. because they had this new image of what they could be, you know. Um, yeah. And I've heard revenue numbers. I mean, I think like forty percent of their profits are from Hawaii, and right now they're hurting. And I, I feel so bad because I love them. I, I have connections with many, many people there. I just know that they were so successful that they launched all these new routes and they've expanded tremendously since then. They almost, I don't know if they doubled, but they, they brought me back in 2014 for their China launch. And I think I trained 3000 people during that training. Was that training China specific? They wanted to do a refresher for Japan. They okay. wanted to do Chinese culture and I didn't do the Chinese training, but I did a lot of the course development and they brought in a Chinese lady to, to actually do it. And we worked together. It was a team. I, I was the kind of like the project leader because they liked my, they liked the way I structured the training. And then we, we did a little on Korea and we did some on Taiwan. Taiwan didn't work out. I don't think the market was big enough. So they eventually canceled that route, but did you do the same seminar you did before to different people, or did you tweak it a little bit and update I, it? I tweaked it quite a bit. I'm always updating my course. It's always changing. Um, I had to, well, I had to shorten it because we, we had a half a day and we had to cover four cultures. So yeah, <laughs> it was, and there's overlap. So I, I created a part of the culture that was common, like Confucianism in Korea, Japan, China, right? Taiwan. And of course there's different flavors of Confucianism, but there's enough similarities where, and you know, yeah. they had to understand that these cultures don't want to be mixed up with each other. <laughs> you know, you True. on, on the Korean flights, you don't want to be putting on your map, the sea of Japan, because that's not what they call it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I delved more into history to understand the relationship of Japan vis-a-vis -vis China, Japan vis-a-vis, you know, Korea and, and Japan and 
you know, so they needed to understand that, not to confuse, not to offend yeah. people by thinking a Chinese person was Japanese or, you know, you know, I, I had so yeah. much fun. And the reason it was so much fun is because I'm used to dealing with technical people, engineers, you know, right. stuffy people in manufacturing. And now I'm dealing with these happy customer service people and they're fun and in both instances. But the second instant, I did 50, I'm sorry, 55 days. I did 110 seminars in two months. Wow. I'm not a comedian, and but I try to keep it funny and moving fast. So they're, you know, I want to entertain them, right? And doing it, 110 seminars in 55 days, man, yeah. by, by the time I got to my 20th seminar, man, I was clicking. I was just moving, man. And I used to wonder, like, how can anyone get up and talk for an hour or two and without notes? You know, how, how do they do that? But now I know it's repetition. As I got into it, I just, my joke, you tell a joke, it bombs. You go, okay, I'm taking that one out. And then you right. accidentally say something else. Everybody laughs. I go, oh, okay, I'm going to leave that in, you know? Well, you look like you're having fun. Not only do you have some great cultural zingers there, but it's it's entertaining and you look like you're having fun. I had a blast. When somebody looks like they're having fun, it's fun to to watch them. That's for sure. Why do Japanese put so much importance on the apology from corporate scandals to perceived customer service and slights? Often it's just the apology rather than the solution, which Japanese prefer. That's a good question. Um, I've been in Japan long enough and, and been exposed to the Japanese for long enough where almost instinctively I say I'm sorry. And sometimes I say I'm sorry, even if it's not my fault. But I agree with you. I, sometimes it's just an empty apology and nothing is done about it. Again, I think it has to do some with humility, some with harmony. It, it, it keeps everybody, you know, you're doing the right thing. But the opposite of that Japanese perception of the apology from Americans, and we often don't apologize enough because we think it's an admission of guilt, which for Japanese, it really isn't, it right? Is. You're just saying, I'm sorry that you were inconvenienced. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I have a problem when Americans don't apologize. You know, they blame somebody else. And, and that's what the Japanese always say about us. We don't always keep our promises. We don't apologize when we break a promise and then we make excuses. And that's a stereotype they have of us. And I can say that with confidence because when I've, I've given hundreds of seminars in the U.S. over the last 20 years, and I always have the Japanese at the beginning of the seminar tell me, what they don't feel comfortable with about working with Americans. And that's always on the list. And it's always those three right together. We don't keep our promises. We don't apologize when we break a promise and we make excuses. I see myself as more of an ambassador, as somebody who isn't going to fulfill those negative stereotypes they have. And by doing so, I can change them. And I have changed people. I've changed my friends. I've changed my family. You, like a lot of Americans, sometimes don't like to follow the rules. <laughs> all the time. That's me. But uh, you live in a country yeah. of laws, both stated and implied in society. So uh, how do you square this? You're a rebellious figure in a land of laws. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I do play the game. 
I pick my battles. <laughs> and I've said this many times to you. I think authenticity is really important. I think being a foreigner in Japan gives you advantages where they cut you more slack to be who you are. Um, I love living here as a foreigner. I, If I were Japanese, I don't think I would love living here <laughs> because it's a pressure cooker. And you and I, we can live outside that pressure cooker. I try to adapt as best I can in an authentic way, but I do break rules, but I do them strategically. You know, I, I, I hug people. My mother-in-law, I'm the only one in the family she'll hug. Like she loves hugging me. She won't hug her own daughter. But when she sees me, she'd come and hug me right away. And she kisses me. Japanese don't do that. And, you know, we call it having gaijin power, playing the gaijin card. Um, I've worked in teams where my Japanese subordinates have, or coworkers have said, hey, Tim, can you do this? We can't. We're Japanese. Can you do it for us? You're, you're, you're an American. You can get away with it. And I would do it. I, I push the envelope um, because I yeah. can. And again, sometimes I would, what, beg for forgiveness later? You know, uh, I've done that. It's easier to ask forgiveness than ask permission. They don't expect us to follow all the rules or know all the rules. I don't know about you, but there's nothing creepier than seeing non-Japanese acting over the top Japanese. It's just creepy. And the yeah. Japanese are creeped out. They, they don't like yeah. it either, you know. So it's a balance. And that was Tim Sullivan, Mr. Authentic. If you or your business need intercultural training, he's your guy. Find him on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review or a comment on iTunes. Thanks, everybody.